We're delighted to be speaking with Michael Vondergeest, CEO of EY Seren. His impressive career has seen him go from leaving school at 16 to work in construction to being in charge of a digitally innovative growing team of 250 people. Known for being both highly driven as well as someone who can kick the ball around with the team, Michael holds family values close to his heart and it's those that he translates effortlessly into the business world. He shares with us insights in how to cope with high pressure and an approach of combining different businesses within an ecosystem that are connected through empathy and accountability that has created lasting performance for the clients he works with. Thanks for joining us today. Um, we always start all of all of these interviews with a kind of quick fire round questions. So these are just single answers cool. um, and just instant reaction. So let's go. A bit of icebreaker. Cats or dogs? Dogs. City or countryside? City. Rugby or football? Football. Winter or summer? Uh, summer. Introvert or extrovert? Oh, that's a hard one. I'd say extrovert. Okay. <laughs> uh, visual or verbal? Um, bit of both. Couldn't go on one side. And surfing or yoga? Both. Got to be done together. <laughs> I know you're a big surfing and yoga. And yoga. We've always gone surfing yoga holidays. So. <laughs> um, so, Michael, your current role is CEO of EY Seren. Um, and can you just explain to me a bit about what that role involves and what your responsibilities are? Heritage-wise, it was uh, we EY bought a service design agency acquired it about four years ago, and so and then we've in the last eighteen months or so merged it with what was historically our customer consulting practice, our customer advisory practice. So I've got the privilege of running that area of the business, and it's it's a wholly owned subsidiary of EY. So I, I've kind of got a couple of hats. I'm a partner at EY, and my background in there is largely about helping clients transform. But now I've got this other hat, which is CEO of EY Seren, which where, if you think about what we do, it, at heart it's about helping clients who want to transform, who will understand and acknowledge that transformation is all about obsessing about the consumer, the member, the citizen, whoever their end recipient of their services that's how you transform and that's how you grow. And that's what we're all geared up toward delivering. And I suppose my role is to orchestrate the best of EY Seren to, to the clients. You know, that's kind of largely what it's about. But it's also a lot more about people than I ever imagined. So, you know, people say, well, what's it like being a CEO? What's the big difference from being just a partner in a large management consultancy firm? I say the biggest single difference is it's like having a family of like 250 people that you've got to care about, all 250, which is really, really hard to do. It's a big job. Do you ever switch off? Um, I suppose if you ask my, my wife and kids, they would say my mind is always a bit too much still switched on work. I think that's been a sort of a bit, a bit of what I struggle with. But I've realised by about day two, of a holiday, I can genuinely switch off. Um, and by Sunday, I'm kind of pretty chilled. But Monday to Friday, if I'm genuinely honest with myself, I'm probably always thinking about work. Yeah. And what do you do to help yourself switch off? You've mentioned holidays. Holidays are massively important, I think, f- for me. But um, for the reason of sort of spending quality time with my wife and my kids is really important to me. 
and just kind of you know it isn't just about decompress it's about the family and and connecting really strongly with the family but I think on a day-to-day basis um I've got an amazing partner she's she's super at helping me sort of decompress and talk about things and also mindfulness is really important to me so I, I'm I'm not I practice mindfulness but in a very um working class northeast football fan way which is um, I do it really tiny bits of mindfulness through the day. Like I cycle to work and I do my, I call it mindful cycling. So I really focus on my breathing, really focus on what's happening around me and try not to think about the work stuff. It's really important. And then if I ever get on a tube, I try and meditate. So it's a little tiny. And then I also, before big meetings or something like that, I try and meditate for about 15 seconds and focus on your breathing because otherwise your head's just whirring away. So that's kind of what I think I do. And then, yeah, that's my main ways of relaxing, I think, between it. That's a quite a nice approach to be able to fit it into your life rather than being, right, I'm going to take an hour out to do a yoga class. It's actually like you've managed to make it work for you. Yeah, is... yeah. And cycling to work is good as well. It gets me exercise. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, finding a way to exercise every day is always really important, I think, as well. Yeah, because football's um, you're a big fan of football and and play football regularly. I still try to pull my groin on Sunday playing five a side. So yeah, no, I play I play dad's five a side on a Sunday still when I can, just to sort of, you know again it's just a way of having a bit of enjoyment. Yeah, so. and if money was no object, what would you be doing as a as a as a job? This. Yeah? Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I wasn't sure if you were going to say football. <laughs> no, I don't think so. I don't think so. I think, I think I'd do this. I might not do it forever, but I'd say at this particular point in my life, this is probably the most fun I could ever imagine have, happening. So you've had an imp- impressive career so far. You've been a partner at Accenture. You've been a partner at EY. And now you've um, a CEO and partner of EY Serum. Was there a particular moment in the kind of journey of your life from studying through to coming to where you are now that kind of any kind of moment that changed your life that um, changed the direction of where you're traveling or made new things become possible to you I suppose you can kind of take a logical perspective and you, know, you, you can look at particular projects or particular roles and say you know that was a big inflection point and, and took me into a trajectory which continued the progress but I, I think it's more nuanced than that I actually when I take a step back and I think about that what I found has had the biggest influence on me is mentors. So I look back at it and I think through my career, like I left school at 16 and I worked for a builder. And that builder who was an ex-joiner had a big influence on my life and, and sort of coached me and nurtured me. And then I kind of think about other, you know, I can think about three or four other people who've been real mental figures and have made me aware of I could do something bigger, if you know what I mean. Like they'd sort of nurture you and give you the feedback to say, you're actually, you know, you could, you could do this as well. And I think it can be quite stressful when, you, when that's happening, but I look back and it's always been, I've, I've been, I'm less fixated on the project and I'm more thought, Actually, there's always somebody that I could reach out to, have a chat with, who made me think, wow, I could, you know, I could do three of these, not one of these, if you know what I mean. And mm-hmm. I always think they're the points which had the biggest influence. 
Talking about Iwaisirin, what would you say their sort of special source is, or what are they really good at? So we've been we've been sort of trying to, I think to an extent, codify what what we what we're about um, recently because as we've got bigger and it's starting to scale out more. It, it requires a bit more systemization than just an, and you know you can't just bob around the office and have a have a chat with everyone and, and you develop the culture that way. And I think what what we are starting to distill this down to is really, and it's connecting into EY as well, and why you know I think EY is a great vehicle to be inside as well. Is what we actually do is we build we're building a better working world. That's what EY is doing, and I and I passionately believe in that. But how EY Seren's doing that is. We're helping our clients to grow in a very broad sense of the word grow. Um, and I think how we do that is we we use empathy, which can be quite a strange word, but you know, to, to, to say that's your sales pitch. But it genuinely is, I think we're we've got a high degree of empathy inside our organization. And and what we do is we bring together people in communities. To make things happen and that's really important for us because that's part of the value set and i think that's really what we do and what we care about i think is three things we care about diversity and well-being of the individual and the human because like this world requires a lot of that at the minute um, we want to influence and we care about the future of society and the future of work and we're looking for programs and projects and clients who are going to shape that and we care about the finite resources and the sustainability of those resources around the world. And, and that's our value set that we're saying. We all are from, from different backgrounds, but we kind of can connect into that. And, and in essence, what we're doing is we're, de we're delivering three things for clients. We either, we either work with clients to really think about that growth acceleration and, and looking at that programmatically. And, and that's a holistic program, which is quite expansive. Some clients are saying, actually, I think I know what that looks like, but the thing I'm struggling with is how do I design services for my consumers because I don't really fully understand where I've got to go because I think the world is moving away from products and it's even moving away from marketing propositions into services because services are things that people want time and time again and are sustainable. You know, marketing propositions can perhaps overstep what a product can deliver. So we, we do a lot of that. And then the third thing we do is when clients understand that, what they realise is business models need to change. And we do a lot of work helping our clients transform their business model, particularly in and around marketing, sales and service, which is the, the core area that we work within. That's kind of the three things we do. And you mentioned a lot just then about kind of this community. And I know that from having experience working with you previously, you have a very innovative approach to um, sort of ecosystem and bring community together. So I wonder if you could explain a little bit more about your approach in that sense. I'll start at the end and then come backwards. The end point of that being effective is nobody knows who anybody works for. That's the simple way of defining it. So if you have a squad of people delivering value and nobody knows who works for what organisation, then you've succeeded because there isn't any sense of them and us or somebody saying, I better ring my boss and find out whether that's in line with what my company wants me to do or 
you know, maybe I better not tell that to that person because they don't work for EY, they work for, you know, such and such an organisation. So my ultimate aim in working with our clients is creating ecosystems of organisations who deploy people to get the job to be done crossing all boundaries. And, and that's easy to say. It's phenomenally hard to do. And one of the things we work hard on is trying to find organisations or if they're very large organisations, individual leaders within those organisations who share our vision and our manifesto. Because if you can get that, then generally what you can find is as sort of ingrained behaviours pop up, leaders can come together to support that that's not really what we need to do on this project. This is a bit of a different project and we should come together and solve that. And it doesn't really matter if it's maybe going to cost me a little bit more money or an extra resource because in the grand scheme of things, that's not really going to make the difference because if it all goes wrong, we'll all end up spending more money anyway. So why don't we just do it right in the first place? And I think finding clients who see that as being valuable to them and are moving away from this notion of one throw to choke is how I get things done. It isn't really because I want the best people in the world to come together to deliver that job. And the best people probably all don't work in the same organisation. Those days are long gone. So I think if we can get that, but I, I always look for, and when we try and find partners that we work with, we, I invest a lot of time in meeting their leaders and saying, are you going to be around? You, you know, are you on the pitch? And, and we form those relationships. And I think the notion of always being able to give someone a call and say, look, I think the team's getting a bit, you know, out of kilter. What can we do about that? Not using some sort of, I'm EY, I'm a really international, very large organisation. You do what I say. It's not the supermarket model. It's the partnership and creating ecosystems. And I think that's been a philosophy that I've come to recognise as the only way you can deliver value for clients. But it does take a lot of time because I think a lot of people feel that that's just an angle or a sales number. So you actually got to, they've got to feel it, see it, breathe it and actually have some tough times together that's when you get the evidence that that's what really happens. Clients included and showing the clients the cost of third parties and showing clients the pressure that we're under helps them realise that ecosystems are where they're going to get the most value as well. I mean, I can imagine it being extremely hard from a position of exactly what you were saying, EY, you know, big global business, um, have kind of gone and spoken to a very large client, you know, got the agreement in place and then you're saying oh but actually we also want to bring in this company this company and this company how do those conversations go i mean ultimately it's about being transparent you know i mean we would introduce that sort of conversation with the clients the very first conversations we have we would mention the word ecosystem we would it would not the first meeting wouldn't pass without reference to the ecosystem that usually triggers a sort of question from the client is what do you mean by ecosystems and, you know and in the same way we talk about breaking down silos and their organisation, they're going to provoke questions because then they're going to understand our way of doing things. So I think from that perspective, the clients are kind of, they know that we would never say we're a one-stop shop. Like, I mean, I've been very clear in building EY Seren and, and this has got the backing of everybody in, in EY as well in the UK and beyond. I said, we're not going to cut code. I don't think that's what we should be doing. We don't house and we don't have the culture to support really deep software engineering skills. Um, and we're not going to be a brand agency because we don't, you know, we're a service design back over. 
if I then say, oh yeah, I'm also a, a mini WPP or a Dentsu or a, we're just not. So I think if clients understand that, we'll say, look, we work with your partners if they've shared a manifesto, or if you haven't got those partners, we can bring in partners that we've worked with before. That's actually usually refreshing for them because they're kind of thinking, okay, so you're, because they've got used to these big systems integrators or, or others coming in and saying, we do everything. And I think they're a bit cynical and jaded. Um, and, and instead, if you say, look, I know this really nimble, small to medium-sized organization that I, I definitely trust and they've been in the trenches with us, that carries a lot of stock for them, I think. Mm. And so your experience, obviously, you've got a lot of experience within different transformation programs. Is there something that you keep seeing coming up again and again that's like a challenge from the client side that you'd like to sort of give them a top tip on? I think the biggest one I would say is, um, are you really aligned, particularly at a board level? Because if they're not aligned to the vision of what they want to achieve, not necessarily the way to get there, but the, the North Star, the end state, call it what you like, that they've signed up to want to ascribe to deliver, if there isn't alignment in the top team, then nobody can solve your problems for you. And all you're doing is paying consultants, advisors, agencies, you name it. All of us will not be successful because there's a group of, you know, five to 15 people who aren't aligned. So we put a lot of time into alignment um, on any form of transformation program. And alignment isn't necessarily 100% agreement, but it is alignment. It, you know, there is a notion of collective responsibility of, we've also ended up to, to getting here. The journey can be a bit convoluted, but that's the number one piece of advice I would give any client on transformation. And then the second thing I would say is, if don't start with a business case. It's amazing, it's amazing. How many clients start transformations, or this or that, or the other. They've got no idea about a business case. And a business case is not a cost estimate. They're very different things. That means, what's my benefits? When are they going to happen? And how much money am I going to spend? How much money am I going to save? And how much risk am I running? And, with, and if you haven't got that, don't start transformation. Because otherwise you're just blind, really. And blowing loads of cash and then saying, ah, oh, it's not delivered on what we wanted. And saying, what did you want? <laughs> yeah, what was the goal? <laughs> You've mentioned a lot about, and certainly from working with you, about kind of, one of the things I think we share actually uh, quite strongly is this customer first, customer first, customer first. Um, and this, and I think when I met you, you brought this element of extra level of that, not just customer first, it was obsess about the customer. And I was wondering if you could just explain a little bit more about your kind of perspective on that. Mm. Well, I think what's interesting, uh, I am. Um... I actually had a client recently who said, you know, I'm really buying into what you're saying, but I'm not sure about that word obsession. It's kind of, which was a great intro to kind of open that dialogue up. And I think, you know, we've talked about it in the past. I think the most dangerous elements of the organisation usually sit in marketing, potentially, definitely sales, potentially in service, where they say, you don't need to talk to the customer. I know exactly what they want. And there's a kind of degree of complacency and hippo thinking, you know, that highest important person's opinion, where people have got such a 
distance between them and what their consumer or their customer wants. And yet they walk around the business being the oracle or that voice of customer or call it what you like. And I think f- for us, it's like, it's not just having a persona. You know, literally, it's micro, micro obsession about micro moments. Like that small removal of friction could have the biggest unlock to a consumer or a customer experience impossible. But how are you going to get that micro moment if you're not obsessing about it? And we're really big into combining multiple quant and multiple qualitative data points to try and achieve a real view of that, of that customer need. And then what we find is, and we challenge highly, when departments or technology teams start to um, moderate that to mediocrity because of systems or organisational constraints. That's another big danger. The obsession lasts as long as somebody says, yeah, but the SAP system doesn't allow that to happen. So let's compromise to mediocrity. So they're the two watchwords for me, is that that hippo sitting there saying they know what the customer wants. And then secondly, internal departments uh, taking fantastic research and saying, let's let's modify that to mediocrity. Mm-hmm. And then in terms of when you're kind of explaining to your clients, so you've got this kind of excellent data, <laughs> deep data, team have done a deep dive and, and you kind of go and present it back. Have you ever found that people have been like, shocked by what you've uncovered as have you ever come across a client that's so kind of um in thinks they're in line with what the customer and what the challenges are and have been shocked by the the kind of the difference in what you've uncovered as being the real underlying problems the real underlying needs i think i mean a recent example is we're working with a client at the moment and um we were asked to go in and the challenge they set us was to um, scale globally a UK-US proposition. We said, yeah, let's go and do the research, and we're doing the research in China, India, a few of the markets. And we also said that we want to go and do the UK-US research, and they said, no, no, it's, it's fine, we're kind of, you know, got a good NPS. It's a classic statement, NPS. <laughs> so we said, well, we'd still like to do some, some short, quite quick, qual research. Um, but then we also, then after that qual, we did some quant. And we had to go back to the board um, and then the non-execs and say to them, guess what, that proposition is dying. But you don't realise it because a lot of your consumers are baby boomers and Gen X. And so you can rest on your laurels and think that your business model is really strong in those core markets, but actually you've got a bell wave of digital natives coming your way who don't think your proposition stacks up. And I think they were really shocked when we told them that because they were expecting us to come up with a business case for China rollout on an MVP and then scale it to global markets. And we were going to have a chat about, you know, Alipay and WeChat and, we, you know, how do Weibo and how do we get that language kind of thing done. But I think, and if you think about it, we were chatting to a bunch of baby boomers about why their business model was, or their business proposition was, was weak. And that took a few sessions, to say the least, to get them beyond that shock and surprise into, so you're telling us we're going to have to invest in our core markets before we can grow globally? We said yes. But, it, but they went there, but it was a bit of a surprise when we first told them it. And there's a notion of, you know, we're there to be the advocates of change, 
to a certain extent, we have to be an emotionally intelligent, unreasonable person. And that's quite a delicate line to work with your clients to be emotionally intelligent and empathic, but unreasonable. And as someone who's very much the forefront of digital innovation, you're seeing inside the hood of many businesses and helping them embrace digital um, in a transformation way. Um, is there anything, any kind of tech or anything, interesting innovation in the digital space that you've seen recently that you just think that's pretty cool? It's going to, a uh, pretty cool thing you want to try or um, could be something you've got in your personal life um, that's a new piece of tech or anything that you think actually that's going to really take off? Well, it's kind of funny because I'd almost go the other way and say... Um, the thing that I feel to be disappointed by is, you know, um, how the emerging tech trends are being deployed into human-centered design. So I look at it and I still have yet to find um, genuine empathic AI solutions coming through in my space, if I'm honest. Um, I see lots of talk about that and I don't see it genuinely come into fruition to make that consumer service better. I see it as a cost reduction play, but time and time again, I don't see it as something which is made, which is genuinely making human lives better. Um, so I'm kind of, so, so on that side, I'm a, I'm a little bit um, sort of jaded, I think, about the hype curve on the fourth industrial revolution. But then the thing that I think excites me is I am seeing some really amazing stuff coming out of data analysis, probably more. So there's some really amazing ability for people to cut and slice data and represent it and visualize it in ways which are compelling to boards, not to just experts. And they kind of go, wow, that's really given me insight into my business and I really can do something with that. So I'm almost like a bit more enthusiastic about business intelligence and big data and, and how that's being used than I am perhaps um, AI at the moment. But I, I hope AI is going to work and I'm enthusiastic about it still and we're still investing in it. But I just, I just think we're, we're losing a bit of the human touch to make it effective at the minute. And how do you stay up to date with like kind of what's going on in digital innovations, new tech that's coming out, new ways data's being formed? Do you read... Do you listen to podcasts? Do you surf the net? <laughs> I, I have the distinct advantage of having probably three or four people I work with closely, some inside EY Sarah and actually some outside, who are technology polymaths. You know, my CTO Mike Turner is a technology polymath. You know, I've got a, an ex-colleague from Accenture who is an off-the-scale polymath. And I deliberately stay very close to those people and I do two things. I read the books they recommend. I don't go and find them myself. Um, and secondly, I listen to them, not talk at them. And I learn more from that than I do most of the kind of articles and the screen scrapes and the kind of blogs that, I kind of, that, I'm, that I'm looking at. So I'd say that's probably my main source of tech innovation. I, I, you know, it's more magpieing from other, the real experts because the depth that you have to be an expert in that is too deep for me and I'm... I've never professed to be a technologist. I've always been a, an interface between the business people and the technologists, so therefore you have to listen to your experts, I think. And what's the most interesting book that they've recommended to you recently? 
uh, Mike recommended a book called The Information Age, which was a bit scary, if I'm honest. Um, it's a bit of a... If you've read Harari's Homodeus, um, and then you go to the sort of speculative end of that about what is information and what is it being used for and how will it work, and there's kind of couple, there's the information age and then there's another book, I forget the name, but it's by an author called Nick Bostrom. And they're really talking about, you know, the 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 the, the deep roboticization of humanity and where that's going to lead us to. And those books are remarkably insightful, a little bit scary, and I'm not saying that I'm, I'm, I'm bored into where they think it's going to go, but to understand things like the ethics of it, and I found that quite interesting. But the information age was a bit more easy to consume than the Nick Bostrom one. You need a bit of a PhD on that one, of course. So. <laughs> I should have just asked Mike for the headlines. I think. Yeah, just give us a synopsis. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, the last couple of questions are just quite fun ones that we just throw in. So um, it's a bit of an oddball question. Um, if you got stranded in Slough stranded for in four Slough. hours, uh-huh. um, and you had only had one thing with you that would pass the time, what would that be? Well, there's the easy answer, which is my phone. Because then you just like you got everything you probably like want to want to consume and and look at and everything. But I reckon if I if I hadn't, I'd probably uh, have a Kindle rather than a phone actually and just read read something that I was like if I was reading a book I'd just like read I could do four hours of reading I think I could I could manage that. Um, this is another quite common question. So the world ends, but you and one other person survive. Who is that person? Your my, choice, dead or alive. My partner, Sasha. And you don't. Very cute. <laughs> Great. Well, thank you very much for speaking to us today. No worries. It's been really insightful.